Hello and welcome to another episode of China Manufacturing Decoded Podcast. And this is episode 158. This is Renan Joran here. I'm going to be your host today. And I'm with Andrew Amenovin, the head of new product development in our company, Sophist. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? Doing well, Renan. Thank you very much. How are you? <laughs> Great. And t- today is an interesting topic because we've been working with a number of companies that develop a hardware product sort of as a support for their software or in complement to their software and they come with a software culture and then suddenly they're developing a hardware product and they have to sort of learn a lot of new tricks or maybe unlearn some some software tricks so the topic specifically is hardware product development tips for software companies, specifically for software companies that have been doing product development based on an agile approach. Okay, and and very often it's a scrum approach and and it works great if it's well-managed and everybody's happy about it, works uh, very well with software. Uh, But when you go into hardware product development, uh, you need to be aware of the limitations of that. I'm not saying completely forget about it. No, 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 no. But you, you need to be aware that you, you're going to run into some of the, the shortcomings. Okay. And you need to plan for it. And uh, it's, it's basically, it's not going to be sufficient. Okay. So maybe first I can explain a little bit why in general software development tends to run on an agile approach, okay? And, for, and what is the agile approach, right? So the, the idea is that the typical project management sort of by the book, all right, is we're going to have this product, we're going to develop it. We have to agree with the different stakeholders and the customers and everything about exactly what to sell to them, what the functionality will be and so on. And from there, at the same time, we need to evaluate what are the tasks going to be? What is the overall plan going to be? Uh, and what are the timelines? And uh, yeah, and what are the resources going to be? And working through a budget and so on and so forth. Okay. And this has been the dominant approach, okay, to, to managing big projects, right? So, so if a city is going to, to put up a new airport or a new bridge or something, for sure they're going to, they're going to, start to plan in this very traditional approach. Now, what software developers have have found out is that it's not a great approach. Well, it has its own shortcomings, and we'll we'll cover that. Um, And and when it's specifically software development, there is another kind of approach that tends to work in a very different way. Okay. And that's what they call the agile methodologies, you know, the agile approach in general, it's kind of a philosophy a little bit. Okay. But it, it does tend to give very different results. Okay. Uh, specifically, you kind of set your resources and your timeline and you say, we're going to do what we can within these timelines. And that's it. We're not going to try to, work through every weekend and, and try to add more people and so on and so forth. Now, the scope itself will adjust. And what it does is that it, I'll say, it avoids 
the traditional pitfall of of, of uh, the traditional big project management approach, which is is going to go over co- over the cost, is, is going to run over budget, is going to take way longer. Okay? And if we look at airports, if we look at the most complex projects, it's like ninety five percent of them are above budget and take longer. Right? Yeah. Uh, just because there's so many dependencies and so many things. And this one's going to go a little bit wrong and that one's going to go completely wrong and so on. And it's going to have a big impact and there's going to be new issues that could not be planned and forecast and so on. Right. So, so, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of, <laughs> of some big, uh, big projects like this that, that took forever. Right. In, in France, we, we talk a lot about the new generation nuclear power plants. <laughs> I mean, it's like 10 years behind schedule and we don't even oh, know when it's going to finish, you know. I'm sure in the U.S. you have these kinds of of, of um, oh, absolutely. famous examples, right? Absolutely, all the time. I think there was one project, I'm not sure exactly what it was for. It was in Boston. It was called the Big Dig. Uh, they dug up like mm. <laughs> five stories into the ground and they mm. were building. Huge tunnels, right? Yeah. Yes, and it ended up taking, yeah, forever to get that project done. Yeah, yeah, I think right. I totally agree with you. It takes forever all the time. Yeah, right. If you go from the Logan Airport down, and uh, yeah, these these tunnels are awesome. But yeah, it, it's it, it was a huge uh, huge undertaking, right? Yes. So that's the sort of the pitfall. Okay, the problem with traditional project management is that you can plan, you can forecast as much as you as you want. You're going to be wrong, and you might be very very wrong, right? So when it comes to software. That's oh, it's been like you know thirty years back. It's been a long, long time in the making, right? So people came up with a manifesto for agile development, and they said, you know, we need to completely turn it on its head and 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 do it very, very differently, right? Don't try to have a big plan and like you know plan into the details and everything. No, you actually take the user needs, you break it down into sort of you know little blocks. Uh, that they call stories, you know, the little blocks that each one would create value as much as possible. Okay, you try to get as close to that as possible. And they call it a story because every time it's like, okay, for that kind of user, this is the kind of user and I want the product to do this because in my life or in my work or wherever I'm going to use it, blah, 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 and this is my need. And it really focuses the people doing the development work on, okay, this is a, a, really a need from that kind of user. And let's think of the right way to, to approach it, right? It tends to be better than maybe sometimes translating everything in, uh, in, in, in engineering specifications and so on. And then people kind of lose track of what exactly the users want sometimes. And these big projects are very, uh, very common. So came up with this, this, this idea, more and more companies used it and it, it it has got to the point where I think I read some surveys, like most companies that do software development now do follow the agile approach more or less, right? And in most cases, it seems to be the scrum approach that is most commonly used, most popular, and every company kind of have this, their own flavor of it, right? It's not a very uh, by the book kind of scrum. And they call it scrum because in rugby, you have this team and then it's kind of messy and they all go together and, and they go like little by little, right? So that is that analogy um, that, that they liked. Okay, so 
in software, why is it? I'm going to cover that, and then we can go into uh, right after that. You know, what what is the application for hardware, right? But first, it's important to understand. I think why is it so popular with software? Because when you develop software, it's so important to see how the users are going to react and get the feedback all along. You know that you 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 start by developing something, just one function of it rather than the whole thing, okay? Now, it's not an entire product. Like, it would not really stand on its two feet in the marketplace or anything, but it does something. And that something does already create a little bit of value for the user. And they put it in the hands of the users and they get some feedback. And this feedback is really, really priceless for software teams. They see how people interact with it. They see where they get confused and so on. They get better at it. And then they, from there, they follow what the users are kind of asking. So like, oh yeah, once we have that, then we really need that. And oh, by the way, it would be nice if it also did that. But this is the kind of insights that you only get when they already started to play with it, right? Not when you ask them, so, okay, imagine a product that would do this, 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 and then they would say, oh, it would be nice, ABC. But once they start to use it, they actually say, well, okay, but this is not that valuable, but actually that would be really valuable, right? And that doesn't work very well and, and, and so on and so forth, right? And actually it's brilliant at that. So that is actually very valuable. Oh, we find it's great to use a software like that. So, okay, then software goes in, in another direction, right? So the software is great. What what kind of goes out the window, as I mentioned, is the... The idea of the initial planning and the big plan and the big, you know, like budgeting or resources and all the tasks and all the, you know, doing a Gantt chart and a uh, whatever they call it, um, uh, PERT <laughs> kind of charts and so on and so forth, right? To see, okay, this is the critical path. We need to be careful. We need to do this. And then uh, these are some other supporting things. If this is late by more than two weeks, then we'll impact the other tasks, right? There's a lot of planning. So all of that kind of goes out the window. But the problem is that one thing that also goes out the window is documentation of the needs and the requirements and sort of the agreement of different stakeholders. And that also is a problem for software development. If, if you develop something for um, like for the military or some, I don't know, for, for medical devices, or this is not going to work like through uh, regulatory and, and other sort of requirements, this is absolutely not allowed. Okay, so even for software development, there are some limitations here. Okay, depends what kind of software you you develop. But then for hardware, actually what's interesting, and uh, Andrew and I have been looking into this, right? Um, It's been applied in sort of different, slightly different approach, slightly different flavor, uh, flavor to hardware product development, right? So... I think both of us, we had a look at the same book, Scrum for Hardware Design by David G. Ullman, okay? Which is yeah, a nice, yeah, Professor uh, David Ullman, yeah. Right, right. Uh, what, what what do you think? Uh, he, he takes some good examples, he, he makes some good points, right? Well, I, I think so. I, you know, you, you and I being uh, hardware engineers ourselves, you know, we, we both looked at this and, and I uh, actually... I have a lot of respect to um, Professor Dolman and uh, checked out, he has two books. Uh, one is called The Mechanical Design 
process. Another one is uh, that he's written his uh, Scrum for Hardware Design, which mm-hmm. you and I were very interested in. We kind of uh, looked through mm-hmm. that whole thing. And one of the things that he talks about that I found it very interesting because it's really true. I, I kind of agree with him being a hardware engineer that, um, you know, applying the agile principles to hardware design is not easy. It doesn't mean it's impossible. Actually, uh, David thinks that it's a great thing and should be done. So he's not uh, going against agile uh, and, and we are not neither. But what we are talking about here is that uh, uh, it's not going to be as easy because basically it's hardware. It's not software. Um, he talks about 13 points uh, that really makes sense, I think. And that, you know, when it comes to hardware, uh, it's not exactly like software. So, and, mm-hmm. and so people who are designing hardware uh, must be aware of that. Otherwise, uh, this conversion will not work. One of the things that he talks about is uh, less modularity when it comes to hardware. You know, in mm-hmm. software, it's totally natural and normal for uh, you know, having modules uh, uh, of codes and software. But that's not exactly this, the case with hardware. You actually have to design and create modules and, and it doesn't come natural. And the second point he mentions is uh, design cycle. Design cycles are really long in uh, mm-hmm. hardware compared to software. I mean, we could have a design cycle that could be six months uh, depending on what you're designing and and some i think i I don't know this for a fact uh but uh apple uh, design cycles for each one of those mobile phones i i think in excess of 10 months so yeah it can happen and 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 then the point is uh that design cycle needs to be taken into account number three that he talks about is high functional independencies in software which that makes sense to me. We, uh, everything that we do in uh, hardware, it, it's totally different. You know, you got to have uh, form and fit and function pretty much work together in hardware to be able to test, to test uh, the device, right? You, you couldn't be just saying, well, let's just, you know, forget about the functionality. As long as it's the form and fit is good, then we're good. No, it doesn't work that way. So you have to have the whole system form fit function. But I guess... That's not the case in software. You could have, you know, certain modules uh, be tested individually, separately, and, and, and you know. Yeah, right. You could have the front end designed yes. to have like, okay, this is the user experience with this UI interface, and we'll, we'll, we'll do the, the backend code later or something. Yeah. Exactly. And again, I'm not a software engineer, so don't want to necessarily get into any kind of discussion with that. But generally speaking, what he's talking about makes sense to me. Number four that he talks about is, uh, you know, you could rewrite, write and rewrite codes and software over and over again, you know, correct and, you know, and keep going. You, you, <laughs> making big changes in uh, and redesigning in hardware is very costly. It, it's not so easy to, to do uh, such a thing. Uh, number five that he talks about, when it comes to software coding, you have pretty much uh, same level of specialized people, but in hardware, uh, you really need specialty engineers in, in certain areas to be able to have a, a good design. You can't have like a, mm. 
you know, part of the design be, be done by, you know, an, an engineer just graduated and another part by a, a seasoned engineer, you know, everyone has to be a, a specialized designer in, in, in hardware side of things. Then he talks about typically it takes longer time for prototyping, for example, for hardware. Whereas um, in software, you could probably write a few codes in, in a week or two and boom, you're, you're done. Mm-hmm. Or at least you got the rough proto showing up, showing up how mm-hmm. the functionality works. And, and that makes sense to me, right? Because you have to actually, in hardware, you have to find, do some planning, then initial uh, CADs, and, and then you have oh, to yeah. buy the parts and you have to have the resources and, and tools yeah, right. to be able to do <laughs> the actual de- design. And we, we do sure. it all the time, right? So uh, we know how painful that is, prototyping. Yeah, it <laughs> kind of works. It doesn't look too bad and so on, right? And software, yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, when you come, when you're talking about prototyping, uh, very often it's, yeah, it might even just be a UX designer in Figma putting things together, pop, 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 you know, in uh, in, in three, four hours, you okay, this is the way it will work. You see, you click here, and then you go there, and then you go there. And if you click here, you go there. Okay, nice. <laughs> Very different. Yeah, totally, totally different way of uh, uh, mindset. And then, of course, he talks about cost. You know, cost of making changes in software is just designing to making changes, you know, code, code changes. There's not a lot of uh, cost involved, you know, time of the engineer and so forth. But that's not the case for hardware. As soon as you make a, a change, you, you might have to buy a whole new module or chip or, or you have to do a PCB redesign. And, and all of these not only take resources, but really take a lot of time and, and cost to put it back together again and make those changes. And then he also talks about, you know, hardware is more demanding range of operation. You know, there's a lot of things that you have to do that it takes a lot of time and resources where in software is not exactly the same way you know a lot of things can be done possibly by minimal resources again you know i am not a software engineer i'm just talking about some of the points that seems uh reasonable from what uh david is talking about uh in his book and then he the number nine that he talks about different testament demands uh, that makes sense to us, right? We do a lot of hardware tests and software tests and hardware tests are so much different. You know, mm-hmm. for software, you just put the program, you just need a computer and, and or a server and you keep, you know, running that software over and over and until you have a failure. But that's not exactly the case with uh, testing hardware. You, you need equipment, sometimes very expensive equipment you know some of those test equipment that test uh, for example rf or mobile phones uh, each one of those equipment costs like millions of dollars just equipment and then they're very very complex and sophisticated equipment you need specialty well-trained staff to know exactly what they're doing or else test data will not be valid so testing is very demanding for for hardware i think versus software Software also, you need some people in teams that are, you know, not when it's not a tiny team. Right. There will often be a QA person who will, you know, be given whatever one or two days to uh, to go through a, a certain number of actions on manually, right? And then over time they automate, right. you know, 
maybe with um, validation testing and, and but sometimes it's more like the function itself you need testing right mm-hmm. we have all kinds yes. of, of testing also uh, but but it's quite different from hardware yeah that's for sure right 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 then the other thing that he mentions that makes a lot of sense is is the fact that uh when you're going through the hardware development life cycle you go through a lot of processes that you can't skip and you can't say, well, let's do manufacturing before design. So you have to do design, manufacturing, test, deliver, and support. You know, all of these need to be done in certain order. But apparently in software, you can skip certain orders and, um, you know, maybe work on some area first and then come back and do some other areas. Is that the case, you think? Yeah, I mean, you you, you need to work much more, um, how to say sequentially in a, you need to plan more i general. think so yeah so i think hardware, so yeah yeah mm-hmm. then the other uh, couple of other points that he makes is that for hardware design you definitely need very uh, clear specifications uh you know if you don't have those specifications clear which are major challenges and you're trying to translate those uh, into agile it's very difficult i i suppose in the agile you get stories and these stories have to be translated into some kind of specifications, technology. But even in in the hardware, you have to have uh, technologies and systems and specifications that all kind of have to be translated into how stories work. So it's not it's not quite easy. Right. Yeah. These are and good the, points. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last two points that he makes, uh, one is that um, higher difficulty proven. Proven a task is done. Uh, and, you know, us engineers, we never really are satisfied, right? We keep updating the design and we never really know when to stop. Uh, and, and and that's really one of the key issues with hardware. You know, you keep improving and, and you don't know exactly when you're done. But I in, in software, it's not quite like that, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm not really sure. I mean, software is never done. Once you put it in, in contact with people anyway. Right. There's always requests for this and that anyway. So, but it, when it comes to like saying this is done, we've done, we've put in place these functions that promised. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, maybe that's what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the last items, number 13, that he mentions that in Agile, uh, you know, the Agile process basically encourages to uh, build, measure, and learn in philosophy. Uh, and he mm. thinks that this doesn't actually. Uh, work well uh, when it comes to hardware because uh, you know you you'd pay a higher price for uh, premature commitments, premature hardware, and and so all in all, looks like you know whether you agree or not, some of these definitely make sense, and and I think that um, he has a good point, and and it it seems that if you try to convert uh, and and run your hardware. Uh, in an agile process, you probably should know exactly what you're doing. Otherwise, you could run into some serious challenge. Right, right, right. Yeah, and then, so I think we, we made a list of eight points that companies that are used to running agile for software development tend to overlook and their projects tend to suffer be, be, because of that, right? So let's, let's go through these points. Yes. <laughs> so... First one, and I alluded to that earlier, is that 
in traditional project management, you plan, you spend a lot of time planning and documenting the requirements and making them specific and so on. Okay. In agile product development for, for, for software, they try not to spend a lot of time on these things and they um, they don't try to be exhaustive. They don't try, you know, uh, or let's say that they, they put less resources, let's say, into trying to be exhaustive and really cover everything uh, nicely and, and completely and so on. Okay. But when you are designing a version of a hardware product, and let's say it's your version one, yeah. well, <laughs> you, you, you can't sort of keep it in the back of your mind, you know. No, you get to start documenting it, right? Yes. That's why phase one, every time we see, okay, this new project, you know, the NPI process, where are you? Phase one, do you have a list of the functions, if possible, in the form of a user manual? Do you have a list of requirements for the product? Um, you know, do you know where it's going to be sold? Do you know what kind of applications and the compliance requirements? Yeah. Um, what what is is reliability durability important? You know, you need to you need to know these things um, uh, from the beginning. Does that make sense? Have you seen any team doing a good job going around that? No, I totally agree with you. I, I think a lot of times, uh, as soon as uh, the prototype, well, you know, as we discussed, prototyping takes a long time. And sometimes either the material arrives late and or mm-hmm. uh, design functions, you know, elongate because they had to make many changes. And basically the project runs out of time. And here it is uh, close to production deadline. And all of a sudden the reliability team and testing team comes in and, hey, uh, can we start uh, testing? And um, that's when they do the shortcut. Uh, yeah, why don't you just do this one test and the rest mm. is good enough. We don't have to do it. Um, mm. Why don't we do the reliability test, uh, you know, at the end, uh, just before production and, and we'll just mm. run one test. And, and then they find issues and they start uh, justifying no need to fix and the known issues. And the, why don't we ship a few uh, we'll fix those later. And, and, and those are the kind of things that eventually, um, mm. uh, you know, causes huge headaches for um, the companies um, or, or the owners of the product. Oh, they, yeah, they, they, they often go out of business because they have, they have bad feedback from the market because they have people Absolutely. complaining. They have, they have people, you know, returning the products, calling for the warranty and everything. You have distributors getting worried or e-commerce, you know, like, Amazon and so on. When they see these kind of things, they, they, they uh, <laughs> you, you, um, you don't score points. Let's say, right? Yeah. Uh, but also, if that's not very, very clear in the minds of the people who uh, who source the components, the people who 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 work on the, the engineering design, are they going to make big mistakes? You know, for example, if it's not clear what the compliance requirements are going to be. They're not going to care about that because they're oh, whatever you know. We send it for certification later, and you know that's it. And then <laughs> you don't take maybe a pre-certified module. You don't ensure that you pick. I don't know. For example, if it's for food safety materials, you you, you don't you don't pick a material that's already certified. So you will have to do tests. Oh, 
guess what? You have uh, you know five parts in 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 uh, in contact with with food or, or beverage times three colors. Well, that's going to be a lot of testing to pay. <laughs> oh yes, that's going to be very expensive. You know, so you make these mistakes and then you you really pay them uh, very bad. And in some cases, wow, if you have to develop to certain very specific standards. For example, you need to take take, take into account functional safety uh, or from the start or all, all throughout, right? I mean, you're just not going to be compliant. Uh, you're going to have to actually start development again from scratch, right? Yeah, so, I, I think you made a really, really good point that I think maybe we should mention it to our uh, listeners. And, and that is the compliance cost. Uh, a lot of our you know customers that are basically you know small companies to big companies, they sometimes forget the fact that some of these tests actually cost a huge amount of money, maybe even more than the development cost of the product. And so what they do is that they they totally forget about those costs. And then here it is, we're about to finish the prototype and we got to do compliance testing. And as soon as you mention the quote on the compliance they fall in, pretty much fall on the floor. It's like, oh my God, no, we we don't have that kind of budget. How are we going to do that? <laughs> mm. Well, not to mention tooling, because that's the other. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> the other big. That, that's tickets. another good uh, one. Yes, I I don't. Know. If you try to, huh, there's some some fancy products like the. Have you heard of the juicer roll? That was kind of hot, uh, especially in Silicon Valley. Maybe. Um, three, four, five years ago. Yes. They had like 20 different custom design parts internally. Uh, they had this. It was nuts. It was really complicated. It was really expensive. They, they yeah, spent all their budget on, on uh, uh, you know, before they got to the end of tooling, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you got to be careful. You get to really work, uh, do what, what we call, you know, I mean, what everybody calls design for manufacturing and assembly uh, based on your objectives, right? It's exactly. all about, um, again, back to design for X, the FX. So that, that's the first point, you know, planning, documentation, don't skip it. You have to do it. And also as you do, as you do the development, you keep it updated because you might think of new things and so on and so forth. You might decide to take it left and right. Now, you might do agile product design for hardware. That's fine, but you need to have sort of a what we call phase one, documenting all that, doing a little bit of initial research and so on. Then, then when you do your proof of concept, and then when you do the uh, the, the, the you know the engineering design to get to prototypes and so on, you can be organized, for example, in a Scrum approach with a little bit of adjustments, but relatively close. Yeah. But you 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 need to have sort of some 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 um, some milestones and some, some checkpoints going back always to um, to the big risks and the big things to take into account. You can't just focus on user stories, which is you know sort of okay. Let's do a sprint, whatever three weeks, and let's let's show it to some users. Let's get some feedback, and then let's let's plan for the next cycle another three weeks and so on. You do this in a very myopic manner and you might really uh, lose track of some very, very important topics, right? That's what we mean. Going on to point number two is that once you get to a final prototype, 
that looks nice, works as you as you, as you need for version one, you freeze the design. Like you 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 validate it, you test it, and so on. You get user feedback, etc. Okay, you validate, you freeze it. You don't keep going. Now, software companies <laughs> are infamous for that. They, they keep adjusting things and so on. But then you need to uh, bring hardware and software together and validate the integration, right? Um, and you really need to freeze the design. Am I right? Absolutely. At, at some point, you know, you have to kind of look at this whole thing as, okay, we're good enough for this version of the product. Let's just push all the other upgrades to the next version. I think there's always room for improvement, right? So you could be going on and on forever. Uh, and honestly, I think that works for hardware and software also. Both are engineers and engineers are never satisfied. Uh, mm-hmm. They always uh, are improving. So at some point, um, project manager needs to put the, his foot down and say, well, enough is enough. <laughs> we need to ship this mm-hmm. product and let, let's uh, freeze it, the, the design and at a point and start testing and then uh, fix the bugs and, and run it uh, through production. Uh, you, you make a really, really good point about this whole thing, I, I think. And, and I think that, yeah, at least first-timers uh, definitely need to take, you know, take note. One thing I noticed that, you know, I think that when it comes to uh, Agile, Agile for hardware definitely works. It's just that can't be exactly like how the software is done. There has to be a kind of hybrid of how it used to be done, but then take some really great uh, notes and ideas from Agile uh, and, and so Agile for software, which could, which a hardware could benefit hardware design. Absolutely. And then, yeah, that leads us to point three, which is quite uh, quite close to point two, is that you need an engineering change management process, right? Yes. As you start to work with some other parties, you start to work with a contract manufacturer, you will, uh, whatever, they will, you know, maybe put together the final prototype. Uh, they will start to work on the tooling and so on. And then they might find ways to maybe make it easier, make it faster, whatever. There needs to be a process. Remember, product design is frozen. Now, it might have to change a little bit to accommodate for the manufacturing process, testing process, and so on. But you need to keep on top of what happens, and there needs to be an approval process so you know exactly what happens, right? Or you're going to have someone in their corner make a change that's not going to be properly validated, retested, and everything. It might have a lot of impacts that that person did not think of, and that might have catastrophic consequences, right? Exactly. And and that has happened many times. You and I uh, see that every day uh, when uh, the key designer forgot something, got distracted, and boom, you know, run into all kinds of issues later. Yeah, for example, yeah, they they find out about it later and they make a little change. They just push it and (laughs) other people don't know about it. Yeah, but it could come from anywhere. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned something really good, you know, and, and I just remembered that change management can't be done always manually. If it's a small project, it's okay. But you, mm-hmm. if you got a huge PCB, big project, and mm-hmm. you got a lot of people working on it, honestly, I think that you probably need at least one person responsible for it, and you need some kind of software. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, sure. There's a number of software that, that can run that. The next point is supply chain visibility. So hardware comes with a bunch of components, right, that come together into the final product. And you don't have to manage that for software, right? Yes. But suddenly, and maybe you still, you still view it as your software product that is mounted on a, a piece of hardware so that it delivers more, more value. Okay, well, now you have to also manage a supply chain. <laughs> and that, that's kind of new to software people. But if you sort of you fall prey to a trading company or a manufacturer that acts as a trading company, doesn't give you any visibility, that would become painful at, at one point. And you might have to switch away from that manufacturer to another one that, that might be really costly in terms of money, in terms of time and so on, right? So you need to plan for that again. And you need to identify the critical components, uh, you know, the PCBA, the display, the battery, whatever, right? What is expensive and what what is prone to failure? What, what is really important to, to differentiate your product, right? So you need to have a very clear idea about these ones and you need to be very clear, okay, well, you know, where is it made? Like the, the custom design plastic enclosure, you know, uh, that's a, a classic one. And the tooling, where is tooling made? I mean, you need to know all these things. You need to have a, a proper contract also to manage these people and to, to have visibility, but also to uh, to make sure they, they, they hold their, their end of the bargain. Yeah, you, you need to, to plan for how to manage the supply chain and you need to implement that. Totally. Um, <laughs> that's a big one. Sure is, yeah. Yeah, because again, just to make it very, very clear, you have one bad component or one component that you cannot make, that you cannot uh, you cannot procure. Sometimes you cannot just skip this one and buy another one to replace. If there is a component shortage in the world or there's some kind of logistic issues, these components are coming only from China. And for example, right now with issues that are happening uh, politically, you know, around the world, I think, I think these could you know, pose all kinds of issues. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, look at the number of cars that are not made because there's not in, not enough chips, right? Um, look at uh, you know difficulty just of procuring uh, even Raspberry Pis and 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 things like that. Uh, it's pretty serious. But it's not just electronic components; it's everything. So when you look yeah, at I the could... very big companies like Apple that really have the budget to do it right, well, you know they, they double source everything. The little plastic insert, the screws, <laughs> everything. Right. They have, I mean, everything when it makes sense. Right. They have to stick, uh, stuck up the uh, some of these components, like which sometimes. which goes all, totally yeah. against the just in time, right? Yes. I mean. Yes. Uh, sometimes what Apple has done is, yeah, they, they have like multi multi year contracts, obviously for for semiconductors with TSMC and you know with the glass manufacturer. I think it's still Corning uh, with 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 some others they sort of lock in the capacity and they right. put money down. They've even uh, purchased a lot of the, the production equipment for that. So you have to manage the supply chain. Okay. You, you have to, to, to keep it on your radar, basically. Okay. The next one is that you will need a quality function. Okay. And it's not just about doing testing. Like in software, what they call QA is what we would call QC. Right, it's just okay. I got a product. I'm gonna run the testing, and I'm blah blah blah. Right, and and of course the testing in software is kind of preventive also for, for for the future because a lot of it is automated. That's great, 
you will catch the issues very early on as part of quality assurance. Okay, I get that. But when you talk about manufacturing, wow, you really need to to do proper risk analysis. You, you need to uh, validate the the suppliers of the critical components. Uh, you need to do a whole bunch of things, right? The engineering it's management not- process typically. Um, you know, you need to follow up on the issues and get to the root cause of them. Wow, you know, it's a lot of work. Quality people are going to be very busy, right? So you can't really skip on that function. Let's say if you're just one, two, three people, okay, you need to think of the quality function. You need to have someone do some of it, right? You need to specify. This is what I want, and I want it that color, not that color, right? Just the at least the basics, right? I can I can accept on the top surface that's very visible. I can accept this kind of surface or that kind this kind of dent, but no more, no no worse than that. Okay, someone needs to say that and, and document it. Okay, and then when you start to grow your team, you will need to have a quality person for sure. Okay, and that's something that a lot of companies are kind of putting aside, you know. But quality and compliance at this um, this this stage, you know. For, Usually you have one person who, who who handles both, right? But that's really that's really important. I think you make a really good point here. A lot of people may think that quality function is just checking something, but that's not exactly yeah. it. I mean, you you're not checking one thing. You're checking the components and doing inspections uh, as soon as the the parts come in, and you have to do inspection and checking while they're being assembled. You have to check the product and inspect it mm-hmm. when they are tested uh, through the line process. Uh, then when they're packaged, you have to check and make sure all the parts and uh, adapters, for example, or a- anything that needs to go with in the box are going to be in the box. You have to weigh the box. You have to do AQL at the end to make sure that predicted def- defect rate is within the acceptable mm-hmm. range. There's just so much into quality and 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 checking the product uh, that i think uh, quality is underestimated by some of yes. the uh, companies who are developing and making products yeah if you want it to to come out consistently good you need a quality function okay that's really important <laughs> um, the next point is as a software team, you, you tend to see your source code as something very, very important. You know, the, the software code, that's great, okay. But all of the the mechanical and the electronic CAD, uh, you know, computer-assisted drawing design files are just as important. Uh, so, you know, um, the, the, the schematics of the PCB and, 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 and the drawings and so on are just as important. And the BOM, the bill of material, is as important. And the bill of material has the list of you know the the the, the components and their sources and their minimum order quantity and the lead time and the price and, and all kinds of things and what validation they went through and so on and so forth. You can't not have that, right? If you don't have that and if you're not on top of it, it's part of your product really is the design of your product. <laughs> that you don't have in your hands that that's really bad totally am, am i going too far here or no i i i think right you're right on the ball i mean this kind of ties in with a little bit with documentation change control and you know having a detailed 
uh, tracking of where you are with your billing materials and drawings, updated schematics. I mean, imagine if someone drops the ball and uses the wrong drawings. I mean, what is it going to happen? You can just yeah. imagine. Or if you got the bill of material and one critical component was forgotten to be ordered, that is a long lead item. Mm -hmm. Or it was ordered by a company, you know, like McMaster, you know, as opposed to a real manufacturer. I mean, all Mm -hmm. kinds of huge things can happen that you really need to have a very seasoned project manager to really catch these issues from all kinds of levels so we're talking uh you know a good seasoned project manager would understand that hey you know this engineer is a junior level he may not know so let me see what's what is he exactly doing not not necessarily to micromanage or pick on him it's just to understand you know is he doing the right thing if not let me educate him because one mistake on his part and everybody trusts him that, okay, he's doing everything right. Next thing you know, you know, <laughs> uh, on, on the loose and, and everybody's uh, pointing fingers and, and crying. How, how we, what are we going to do now? Then right. if we make a change or if this part doesn't arrive in the next uh, couple of weeks, we, we just lost the market share. So <laughs> and the stakes are higher. Yeah. The stakes are higher. Oh, we ordered, of these batteries and they're no good. What do we do now? Or even worse, we ship the batteries, but now we find that they are not. Or one of them exploded and they went to trust. (laughs) Yeah, or the charger uh, went up in flames or something. Oh, what do we do now, right? The the stakes are much higher. And and the timelines also are very critical. I mean, you have to have the products on the shelves the the week after Thanksgiving if you want to do a good Christmas (laughs) season, right? And then oh, yes. before that, you need to you need to ship it whatever six weeks before, which means the X factory date maybe say seven weeks before, uh, right. which means past final quality uh, even before that, and you know production was finished and da 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 right. And if you're a little bit late, then oh okay, then we're gonna pay an extra thirty thousand dollars just for airfare. Ouch, uh, <laughs> or ouch. Um, it's not going to be on the shelves. We're going to have penalties or, you know, all kinds of bad things like this. this, this, this and and, and again, I, what you just mentioned, it just shows the difference between software and hardware. You know, in the software, of course, you know, missed issues uh, could pose a huge, huge hurdle. I understand that. But uh, when, when it comes to hardware, I think uh, one small mistake can translate into huge, huge problems with respect to deliverables or testing or meeting the specifications or meeting the demand. I mean, the the mistakes are, like you said, very high stake in in hardware than I think software. Right. Yeah. An analogy for that would be in software, you're going to shoot at another, another ship, let's say, okay, let's go back two centuries. You can start to shoot and then you see where your, your 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 bullets land and then you adjust and you adjust and you keep shooting, you keep shooting, you keep shooting. And then finally you start to hit the other ship, boom, 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 right? right. In hardware, you have a huge cannonball. Then you need to wait and wait and load it patiently uh, and then do all your calculations and everything. And then boom. And then you have another, uh, whatever, you know, a long, long time before you can shoot the next one. 
So <laughs> you you need to be much much more deliberate about you know how exactly to calculate the trajectory, you know, the distance and everything to yes, hit that totally. other ship. Totally. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> uh, so let me see. So just to finish, we still have two bullet points. Number seven is product reliability, and we talked about it a number of times on this podcast. Also, what we noticed with a number of um, of our customers who come to us and they they've been doing software for a while is that very often software they get paid with the software as a service model, and then when they add a, a hardware piece to their one of their product or a new product, they tend to also set it as a service. You know, product plus software as a service, basically. Right. So they still have that business model of delivering the product and then getting paid over time as the product delivers value, right? And if you do that, and a lot of your your products fade after six months, after one year, well, you're not going to keep getting paid for those. You need to, you know, send another for replacement and it's expensive. Now, if your products last for four or five years instead, I mean, the difference in terms of profitability in the, the mid to long term is staggering. So Absolutely. Reliability maybe is even more important than when you sell something with a one-year warranty and you want to make sure that you don't have too many returns and blah, blah, blah. And the industry norm maybe is 3%, 5%, or depending on the channel. Okay. No, no. It's... <laughs> with software companies sometimes they might not realize it but reliability is actually even more important for them with their business model yeah i mean take take an example uh, a car you know that mm-hmm. must at least be functioning uh, very reliable for at least what, 10 to 15 years you mm-hmm. know and and what if all of a sudden within the first 5 years and we've seen this happen in at least us car makers a few times, but the last one was with Toyota, right? They had a airbag issues. You, you, mm-hmm. you recall what happened? Oh yeah, it exploded. It actually sent some metal projectile into people's heads. Exactly, um, and killed a few people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It was a, um, a Japanese. I forget the name, but like a huge company making a lot of. You know, there's a, there's only like two or three major airbag manufacturers. Yes, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example of how uh, you can underestimate product reliability and then take that product without perhaps testing properly or trusting the supplier too much and then um, implementing that into your awesome Toyota product and boom, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have unbelievable it's more like a nightmare happening happening to for toyota they lost huge business on that not only in terms of a lot of people's trust in the product in toyota but also probably a lot of legal costs oh yeah well that uh, yeah it's very very uh, it's highly regulated obviously i, I think um, even when they do car assembly in the us the they have to have an inspector. It's mandated by the government to make sure they have the airbags are, are placed correctly, you know, all the way until um, the manufacturing, you know, the, the point where it's assembled into the vehicle. Uh, and then you can imagine all the the hurdles on on the design and the manufacturing of these airbags themselves. Yeah. And and you know the 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 meat of the this conversation I would say is that you can't look 
and you made a good point on that, is that you can't look at uh, a small consumer product that you can just do a drop test and you say, well, it's good, good enough. <laughs> you know, right. you can't be thinking that way when it comes to reliability of a an airplane or a car. You really need very specialized reliability engineers that will have to do uh, parts count, uh, prediction analysis, uh, do a lot of serious reliability calculations to actually understand, uh, you know, the parts that are accumulated in that product, plus the whole product itself, the whole system. And that's why in those environments, they don't call them reliability engineers. They call them system analysts because they really look at the whole product as a system and they calculate the reliability and they come up with reports on what are the risks and what are the rewards. Right, right, right. And where to add redundancy and so on and so forth. Exactly. Where to add a fail safe and so on. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, vast topic. <laughs> so, and the last one is product compliance. And this touches on product safety, which we just touched on with product reliability, obviously, because often poor reliability leads to safety issues. But product compliance is something you need to plan from the start. And I actually already mentioned that earlier in this episode. You need to know what standards, uh, what regulations you will have to comply with because it will impact what uh, suppliers you can work with, what materials you need to pick, what, what components you need to pick, should they be pre-certified in some way, uh, should you, uh, you know, how to, how, to, uh, how to qualify them. And then when you are building your, your, your product, um, you know, in your own design, what what are the good practices that you absolutely have to follow? Because you can't do all that work and then uh, get the tooling in place and with the parts of tooling, you do an engineering build, send it to labs for certification, you wait for a few weeks, you pay thousands and thousands of dollars and then you fail and you wonder, wow, how come we fail? You know, well, it's way, way too late to start wondering about these kinds of things. This should be planned from the beginning and all along. Right. Absolutely. I th and I think that uh, we have some information about compliance in general for our listeners. In case they are interested, we, we can definitely put a link in there from previous uh, podcasts uh, that talk about when is a good time to do compliance testing, how much it costs roughly, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and the whole planning of the whole compliance. I, I think they could benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Right. We're running out of time. So this is a big, uh, big topic, uh, an in interesting topic. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, thanks a lot, Andrew, for, for joining me on this one. Yeah, we covered it quite nicely. So we'll let our listeners think about it. And uh, if they are in that case, uh, hopefully draw some lessons from, uh, from what we discussed. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Thank you. Um, catch you. Catch you next time. And to the listeners, thanks for listening. By the way, give us a five-star review if you like the, the content, if you think it's helpful in whatever application you use. Uh, maybe even leave a little bit of a comment uh, just to uh, to make us feel, feel good about putting this out every week. Having said that, talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Sophies Group. 
We're on a mission to provide you with everything you need to manufacture effectively in Asia, including inspections, auditing, new product development support, contract manufacturing, 3PL warehousing and fulfillment, and much, much more across Asia's key manufacturing areas. Visit us at sofeast.com, that's S-O-F-E-A-S-T dot com, to learn more and get help. If you've enjoyed the podcast today, please do rate, review and share because it will really help others discover us too.